It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder and violence. So the other evening some documents were released in the Idaho case. These documents are the probable cause affidavit in connection to a search warrant and the search warrant itself, and then documents concerning what was found as a result of that search. Now, there's been a lot of controversy in other cases as to possible delays in public documents getting released. And so I think it's important right at the outset to clarify what happened here. What happened here was there was a concern that this document originally contained the full names of the two residents of the house in Idaho who survived that horrible night. And the officials wanted to protect their privacy as much as possible. 
And so they asked for and got permission to remove the names of those people from this document and to instead identify them by initials, just as they were identified in the uh, arrest probable cause affidavit. And so now they've been released. So today we're going to talk about this search warrant and the supporting probable cause affidavit. This goes a lot further in some ways than the initial probable cause affidavit that was released in this case. That was basically summarizing uh, why authorities felt that Brian Koberger should be arrested. This is much more about the evidence that led them to think that they will find specific items, specific pieces of evidence, at his residence. Yeah, so this gets more into what their thinking is, what they're trying to find, and you know that also indicates maybe stuff they haven't found yet. So in this episode, we're going to be going through this entire 49-page document. We're not going to focus on every aspect of it, because some of it, as you'll find, is quite similar to the initial probable cause affidavit against Brian Koberger. But we will be selecting elements of it that we feel stand out and that we feel give us a broader picture of how this investigation is going and how it may continue to go in the future in terms of the evidence against Koberger, how investigators are finding that, and what we can all be looking out for as we follow this case. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is the University of Idaho Murders Search Warrant. As we mentioned at the top, this document is 49 pages long and includes a number of different elements. The opening is essentially a word from Whitman County Prosecutor Dennis Tracy. Uh, he, that's he's, Whitman County is in Washington State. I note that because there's been some speculation that Brian Koberger sort of purposely committed uh, the crime across state lines in order to create jurisdictional confusion. I don't feel like that has been confirmed yet. We really don't have a conclusive answer on 
what the motive may have been here, although there are certainly reports in the media that kind of give some possible indications about what that could have been. But I just want to note that up front, that if that was indeed an effort by the killer to confuse things, it doesn't seem to have worked. These documents kind of testify to a level of cooperation between the Idaho and Washington authorities that, uh, you know, didn't seem to hinder any sort of investigation. You have basically, you know, Washington sort of deferring to Idaho to a certain level. They're cooperating, you know, you know, murder happened in Idaho. We have to look into the suspect in Washington. Let's just deal with it. So uh, that's something that I just wanted to note that struck me about these this latest release. I want to take a moment to highlight uh, something that appears a bit earlier in this document. They make note pretty early on of the DNA evidence. And again, this goes back to the fact that some DNA was found on a knife sheath that was recovered from the crime scene. Authorities subsequently took some material from the trash of the Kohlberger family residence in Pennsylvania and tested it and basically found that the DNA they tested was consistent with the person who donated the DNA being the father of the person whose DNA was on the knife sheath. And I just want to note, this is mentioned in the document, this DNA test. And uh, right after it is mentioned, uh, there is this. I am specifically asking the court to not consider this supplemental disclosure as evidence supporting the existence of probable cause. The reason for this request is that if the DNA test results are held inadmissible at some point, such a ruling would not impact the finding of probable cause for this warrant, so long as this court is satisfied as to probable cause regardless of this DNA test result. It all gets back to the validity of probable cause for a search warrant. This is something I suspect we'll be talking quite a bit about in the Delphi case. And what it boils down to is if your probable cause is based upon something that is thrown out, then you could arguably lose your probable cause. Yes, it's basically about uh, not putting too much pressure on the DNA evidence and basically indicating that we have a very strong case against Koberger. They're just basically protecting the case and they're thinking strategically about how to protect the case going forward. I think basically there is a concern there that at some point in the future, a court might decide that it was not lawful or proper for them to take trash items from the Kohlberger residence and test them for DNA. And if a court rules that, then that would mean that those particular DNA test results would be inadmissible. And if this probable cause affidavit rested on those particular DNA results, which are then held inadmissible, you could theoretically lose the probable cause, which would mean you could also then lose the materials you found as a result of that search. So I would say that the centerpiece of this batch of documents, essentially, we kind of refer to it as the search warrant, but it's really the search warrant, an affidavit supporting the search warrant for probable cause and a number of other uh, different documents sort of all put together, essentially. 
uh, the centerpiece comes from Sergeant Dustin Blaker of the Moscow, Idaho PD. And he writes this sort of first person account of his response to the quadruple homicide of the four students. And he notes that he arrived at the scene with Corporal Brett Payne of the Moscow PD. If that name sounds familiar, that's because in the initial probable cause affidavit for Brian Koberger's arrest, uh, he was the officer who, who wrote a lot about that, wrote about his experience at the crime scene. So initially, when you're looking through this portion of this document from Blaker, you're seeing a affidavit that's almost identical at first to that of Payne's. Uh, it's almost word for word, pretty much they're saying, you know, the same the same thing. You know, we went to the residence on King Street. Here's what we observed. We observed four deceased individuals, whatnot. But at a certain point, Blaker's version diverts from Payne's. And the reason for that is because these two documents, these two affidavits, are designed to do rather different things. So I'll let Kevin talk a bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so basically what we saw in the previous probable cause affidavit was, here's what we've done so far. Here's a summary of the evidence we found, how we found it. But at a certain point in this document, it gets to the, 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 the point where it, the document shifts and becomes, here's what we hope to do next. Here is what we think we can do next if you give us the power. The King Road residence contained a significant amount of blood from the victims, including spatter and cast-off. Bloodstain pattern resulting from blood drops released from an object due to its motion, which, based on my training, makes it likely that this evidence was transferred to Koberger's person, clothing, or shoes. Based on the location of the suspect's vehicle and the 8458 phone immediately following the murders, it is probable that Kohlberger went home to his residence. At that time, it is likely that he still had blood or other trace evidence on his person, clothes, shoes, including skin cells or hairs from the victims or from Gonzalez's dog. It is likely that some trace evidence was transferred to areas in his apartment through contact with the items worn during the attack. One likely location for the clothes, mask, shoes that he was wearing during the attack would be his residence. So if Payne's affidavit was essentially describing the horrific scene at the house and setting the stage for the crime for which Koberger is being arrested, then Blaker's version in, in this section, after basically pretty much closely hewing to Payne's version previously, in this section is basically saying, and here's what that means for a search warrant. Here's why we need to search this man's residence. As we've talked about before on the show, but to reiterate, it is a huge breach in somebody's rights to have your house searched by the police, have your possessions gone through. And even in a case with strong evidence, the police have to take pains to justify that breach to a judge, basically saying, here's what we want specifically. They cannot just go into somebody's house and say, we want to look at stuff that looks suspicious. <laughs> they have to be saying, here's what we want to look at specifically, and here's why. So in this case, they're emphasizing the blood evidence. They're saying, this was a brutal, bloody crime. He attacked 
these four kids in this home. Blood was everywhere. We believe that even if it was a very trace amount that was invisible, that there would likely be blood evidence on his items, his shoes, his clothing that he would carry back into his Washington apartment. And we need to look through it. So you notice the specificity of it. And I think that, you know, very much comes through in this section. Yeah, it is difficult to imagine how a person could commit a crime like this and not end up with blood or other materials on his person. And no matter how careful a person is or believes he may be, it is very difficult to impossible to clean away all evidences of such things. And I'll note that one element of this that I think really works in favor of the Idaho authorities is that they seemingly caught on to Koberger as a suspect relatively quickly. We saw that in the previous probable cause affidavit for his arrest. We're seeing it here because you could imagine if they were coming back to this many years later, maybe some of that evidence wouldn't exist anymore. Maybe Koberger would have destroyed more evidence. There'd be less opportunity to find those, you know, possibly even microscopic blood evidence. And so that's something that I think we can agree that um, Idaho's done pretty well here. They're they're kind of jumping on this immediately, and that's giving them more of a chance to get significant evidence against this guy. To date, we have not recovered the weapon used in the homicide, which would indicate that he took it with him from the scene. Based on my training, the weapon will likely contain trace evidence on it, such as blood or skin or hair from the crime scene. One likely location for the weapon or any sheath for the weapon would be his residence. So they're acknowledging that, uh, at least as of then, they did not have the murder weapon. And of course, it is logical to imagine that uh, the murderer would take the murder weapon with him. Yes, we know the murderer left behind the K-bar knife sheath with the U.S. Marine Corps seal on it. But um, the knife is 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 not uh, has not been located as far as we know. And I'll as I'll note, we'll get into what authorities did seize from Koberger's residence. But a knife was not among the items listed in that section of this document. So um, suffice to say that the murder weapon seems to still not have been found. Unless they found it subsequently through some method we don't know, maybe from some other search we don't know about or somehow recovered. Yeah, it. it's certainly possible that it's been found. It's just not uh, conclusively been found as far as this document is concerned. Now, this next section gets into a bit of what we were talking about earlier, and that's the lack of immediately apparent motive in this crime. You have this really heinous attack on these four kids just going to college, doing normal college things, you know, beloved by the community, and, you know, immediately, why would why would somebody do this? I mean, there's no good reason for, for any murder of anybody, right? But in, in this case, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's really, I think, baffled a lot of people. How, how a thing like this could happen, what would prompt someone to do such a violent uh, attack with a knife against four people? So here in this following section, we're seeing the authorities kind of Perhaps not getting at the motive, but perhaps getting at some elements of the crime that could ultimately lead us to a motive. Based on my training and experience, when someone plans an event or action, one likely location for doing so is in their residence or office. 
One would not want to conduct such planning in public if they were planning a criminal act, and so it is even more likely that planning of a criminal act would be done in one's residence or office. These murders appear to have been planned, rather than a crime that happened in a moment of conflict. I believe it is likely that Koberger planned his actions ahead of time. The plans may have included a review of other murders or violent assaults, slash stabbing, and or cutting of people, as well as how to avoid detection after the commission of such crimes. Details of the 1122 King Road residence, its location slash neighborhood, and or information about one or more of the victims, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonzalez, Zana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, BF, and or DM. Further, based on my training and experience, criminals utilize electronic digital devices as well as paper or other media in conducting planning of crimes, just as non-criminals use various media to plan activities. Therefore, there is probable cause to believe that digital devices were used and or are being used in furtherance of the listed crimes or to avoid detection for the listed crimes and likely contain evidence of the listed crimes. So to note the initials, which in this case have been sort of handwritten in, refer to the two roommates of the murder victims who were not killed that night. DM is the young lady who we heard from in the first, in the arrest warrant, who essentially witnessed the accused, uh, the, you know, the alleged perpetrator, and saw, you know, a young man, a skinny man wearing a mask and uh, kind of froze up when she saw him. And so that's, uh, they stated at the top that Washington also wants to keep their identities somewhat private. And uh, so that's why they redacted that. So this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is I don't think this is uh, a surprise, but it's it makes clear, absolutely clear that investigators do not believe that this was a spur of the moment thing, not a, a heat of the moment uh, act of passion, that this was something that was planned and perhaps planned for a long time. What, what do you think that tells us about what sort of person they believe Kohlberger is? Well, it certainly precludes certain possibilities. Uh, if, if, we, if we believe authorities, which I do, this is a pretty thorough investigation from what it sounds like. And you can imagine a situation where uh, a conversation with, with, a, with a, someone you're connected with turns very heated, it gets violent, uh, somebody is killed, and then others are killed to basically cover up that initial murder. That's basically they're basically saying they don't believe that happened here. They believe that this person planned ahead and therefore you imagine that they went to the house, to the residence to kill people. Uh, whether it doesn't it doesn't get into whether Koberger was targeting one person or the other, but it does indicate that he's he went here with a you know, a plan of action. And a lot of people I think have been you know, noting that okay, it's a you know, he's a possible serial killer type. He's an organized killer. I think I tend to think we just don't have enough information at this point to kind of conclusively say that, but it certainly fits in line with somebody who, you know, is certainly, I mean, they, they use the word planning. So, I mean, it, it, that is a more organized person than somebody who just impulsively committed a crime and, and has been running from it essentially. So, it's definitely very chilling because, again, you have this this crime against these four young people in college, and 
you know, to think that somebody was specifically basically coming after them, those kids in that house is just, it's, it's very disturbing. And then it goes on to make uh, the point. Well, uh, basically, if someone is planning something, where do we find evidence or things left behind as a result of that planning? And they make the good point that in this day and age, when people plan, whether they're criminals or non-criminals, they tend to rely a lot on digital devices. A couple of months ago, uh, you and I went to uh, on a weekend trip to Nashville, Tennessee. And I remember before we made the trip, we were online a lot. We were looking up hotels, restaurants, things to do. And so, in theory, you would find evidence of that on our digital devices. And they're saying, well, we think he planned this. And so, therefore, we imagine we will find evidence of that on his digital devices. And it's almost, it's pretty disturbing because the way it's phrased here, and I believe this is intentional on the part of Blaker, but it's almost like he is comparing it to how you would plan a vacation or how you would plan a special event, which indicates that, you know, they believe that this killer, this may have been a special event for him. You know, like this is... (laughs) I mean, this is akin to him what going on vacation is is to most of us. Uh, this is like an event that he planned ahead for. So that stuck out to me as, as sort of indicative. This is not somebody who's killing for money or, you know, to, to uh, some specific aspect. Um, this is like a special event for him. I don't know. That may I'm going to acknowledge that that's speculation on my part, and that that may be reading too much into it. It's possible that more information will come out that enlightens us about you know a possible connection to one of the victims, or you know there being some element of revenge or or stalking. Uh, we've certainly heard reports indicating that in the media so far, but but this certainly just indicates a level of organization. I'll also note that this section also mentions a review of other murders or violent assaults slash stabbing and or cutting people. So as well as, as well as how to avoid detection after the commission of such crimes. I will be very curious if it comes out that Koberger, you know, who's obviously innocent until proven guilty, but, you know, the the alleged killer in this case, if he was researching other specific cases and what those specific cases were. One of the underpinnings of our show, The Murder Sheet, has been essentially, you know, contextualizing crimes. So we often, you know, take one case that looks really unusual and then are able to find a couple of other cases where maybe things unfolded in at least a superficially similar way. And we can discuss the differences, similarities. Uh, and so wh- what I would be curious about, wh- were there certain cases that he was especially fixated on and what were those? A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin. 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now let's get into some of the digital elements of this case. Digital devices typically retain some evidence of all activity taken via the device or associated media, and, as such, could contain evidence of crime. For example, data, whether stored intentionally or unintentionally, can contain evidence of knowledge, intent, efforts to conceal, sell, or dispose of evidence or proceeds of criminal activity, accomplice identity, association with victims, or geographic location of the device possessor at particular dates and times. This information can be in numerous forms, such as photographs, address books, or contact lists, or communications with others through means such as phone calls, email, instant messaging, social media, chat sessions, or other digital communications. Evidence can remain on the device or media for indefinite periods of time after the communication originally took place, even if deleted by the user. Information deleted by the user may be recovered by a forensic examiner throughout the working lifespan of the device. That's kind of interesting to me because in a way it reminds me of something we were discussing earlier, which is that if you are a murderer at a crime scene and it's bloody and if you get blood on you, no matter how hard you try, it is likely that some evidence of that blood will remain. And they're making the point here that with digital devices, there's something similar. 
that no matter how hard you try, it's very likely that some digital traces of your activity will remain on that device. Yes, and it kind of gives, I mean, I, I assume that some of this is boilerplate language, so I'm not going to read too much into accomplice identity, things like that. I imagine they would put that in there even if they felt Koberger acted alone, because that's something you're going to want to rule out and, and, and kind of lock down, although it's possible that, I mean, I don't know. Um, but this is kind of getting into what they're going to be looking at with his with his devices, and also just kind of furthers the whole if he was planning this, there should be evidence of that on his devices. And we can, if we can get a sense of, you know, what he was planning, maybe that speaks to motive. And if he was trying to get in contact with certain victims or was in contact, then we can kind of start piecing together, you know, as much of why this happened as, as is possible in such a heinous crime. We're not going to read every single paragraph dealing with digital devices and digital evidence, but we want to note that there is a lot of it in this affidavit, which indicates that they are very much banking on access to his devices, his computers, his phones, um, as far as piecing some of this together. So uh, this is going to be the digital evidence in this seems like it's going to be important or it's, or it's at the very least something that investigators are strongly interested in. They very much go into detail about what they want and, you know, note, the, all the different kinds of digital evidence that can exist. That doesn't necessarily mean they're expecting to get all of that. It just means that they want to cover their bases when it comes to what they're asking for, just on the off chance something becomes relevant or helpful to their case. And the digital stuff is so complicated that it's it's uh, worth noting that at one point – uh, they make a special request that we want to get assistance from a, a specialist who can help us review all of this and make sure we don't miss anything. And if I could, if I could boil down the digital, the request involving digital evidence, um, and and sort of what Idaho authorities are looking for here, here's how I, I would break it down. They basically want all the accounts associated with Koberger's devices possible to determine ownership, right? It, 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 in, in technologically-based cases, it's very important because, because I could hypothetically steal Kevin's phone and look up horrible things on it. They want to kind of prove that somebody's device is indeed theirs and, and, and not, oh, I, I bought this off of somebody else. They want to be able to kind of establish that ownership. That's one thing that they're looking at. They're also looking at you know, basically photographs, images, videos, documents, data to that effect uh, that, that kind of, ha you know, that were on the phone, downloaded onto the phone, whatnot, added to the phone or, or computer around the time of the murders. They want internet searches, obviously, about, you know, stabbing crimes, about um, the King Road residence where these kids were killed. And about the victims, so Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, Xander Canodal, Madison Mogan, and the two surviving roommates. They want to see, was he searching for these people? Was he in contact with these people? They want any GPS information that the devices can give you. Um, you know, we, we all know that your phones can pretty much track you around 
you can use it to, you know, if you share your location with somebody, you can, you know, follow them around town, essentially. So they want to see, you know, can we pinpoint, can we use these devices to pinpoint where Koberger was at certain times? And and so those are basically, in, in broad outlines, some of the major categories that authorities are looking at when they're considering, you know, these digital evidence requests. So basically, as a result of all of this, the search warrant was granted and the search was conducted. And so then the obvious question I think everybody would have at this point is, what did they find? And they actually provide a list of what they found and seized from the Kohlberger residence. One, one nitrite-type black glove. Two, one Walmart receipt with one Dickies tag. Three, two Marshalls receipts. Four, dust container from Bissell Power Force vacuum. Five, eight possible hair strands. Six, one Fire TV stick with cord slash plug. Seven, one possible animal hair strand. Eight, one possible hair. Nine, one possible hair. Ten, one possible hair. Eleven, one possible hair strand. Twelve, one computer tower. A, one collection of dark red spot collected without testing. B, two cuttings from uncased pillow of reddish-brown stain, larger stain tested. C, two top and bottom of mattress cover packaged separately, both labeled C, multiple stains, one tested. A couple of notes on this search. The warrant seems to have been issued on December 29th, 2022, and it was served on December 30th, 2022, by Assistant Chief of Washington State University Police, Don Daniels. Just to give you a context of when this is occurring, this is not, this was not, you know, it was somewhat recent, but it wasn't, you know, this week, essentially. We're hearing about it this week because it was unsealed. It's great that we have this list, but on the other hand, it's also a little frustrating because we don't know what it means because some of these items have not been tested yet. There's all of these hairs. We don't know whose hairs they were. They could be the hairs of a victim. They could be the hairs of virtually anybody. They could even be hairs of someone who lived in the apartment before uh, Koberger. We have uh, the computer. We have no idea what they found on the computer. We have uh, all of these stained items. They could be blood stains. They could be coffee stains. We don't know. But obviously, as police are looking at them, they're thinking, you know, we have to get anything that could look somewhat suspicious. And, you know, with the hair, I, I do wonder, you know, one thing that would, you know, obviously, typically, women have longer hair than men, right? Yeah. So. They know what Koberger's hair looks like. So if they're finding hairs that look quite a bit different from what they would expect from him, you know, who has short, dark hair, then I imagine that that's something they're going to be especially uh, honed in on to speculate a little bit there. Another aspect of this is they're, you know, they're noting that, you know, some of the stained materials were, you know, an uncased pillow and mattress cover. So, you know, the, the, the bedding of this accused killer is seeming to receive a, a special focus here. And one element, I'm almost a little bit surprised, and, and perhaps I shouldn't be, 
I'm surprised by the shortness of this list. You know, I guess, I mean, I guess with a computer tower, I guess that's all they need. I guess, and, and, and with a fire stick, if that's his mode of watching television, that's all they need. That's how they get the data required for looking into this. So I think maybe I am just <laughs> coming off of covering the Delphi case where you had one person involved in that, Kagan Klein, with all these different devices. Maybe I'm, you know... I I just am biased by that situation by being like, wait, there isn't, you know, 200 uh, iPhones and and whatnot. And also in that case, I don't know if it it will apply here, but in that case, it actually took a great deal of time and effort for law enforcement to be able to fully analyze all of the digital information and data on those devices. Uh, So who knows what might be on that computer and who knows how Kloberger may have potentially tried to hide it. So it may be a while before even law enforcement is fully confident that they're aware of everything there is to know about what's on that computer. Yeah, and I imagine it's not surprising that his phone wasn't seized in this because, as they noted, he was away because it was a break for WSU. So, uh, you know, he, he likely had his phone with him and it would not have left that in the residence. So in conclusion... This search warrant and the associated documents, they give us more of a sense of the evidence that's been collected so far, at least a portion of the evidence that's been collected so far, uh, what police have been strategically thinking about in terms of how they can gather more evidence to prove their case. And therefore, that gives us more context about where things have gone in this Idaho case and where they could be going in the future as the investigation continues, and as we get closer to a possible trial or some other conclusion in this case. Uh, and of course, we'll continue fo- to follow this case closely. And if anyone listening has any information they think would be helpful to us about this, please contact us at Murder Sheet. Thanks so much for listening to the Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.